All right. So, good morning, everybody. So, Kevin mentioned earlier, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 uh, this morning. And we're starting a series called Blind Faith. And that term, it's kind of a loaded term. We have ideas of maybe what that means. Uh, but the reasoning behind why we called it that was uh, the last thing that we saw Jesus do before he enters Jerusalem. Pastor Chris preached uh, the, the end of chapter 20 last week. And the last thing we saw Jesus do was heal two blind men. Now, he could have done any sort of uh, miracle on his way to Jerusalem, but that's the last one. And I think there was a reason for that, because over the next few chapters, we're going to see time after time where people think they see one thing, and Jesus points out that not only are they not seeing it, but, the, but tells them what they've missed. You know, it shows them where they've been blind. And so some people, when we hear that term blind faith, some people think that's what Christianity is, right? That, that that's what our faith is, is just a blind faith. But what Jesus wants is actually the, the opposite of that, right? He's, he doesn't want groupthink, blind faith. He, he wants an eyes-wide-open, personal relationship sort of faith for us, right? We don't believe things just because everyone else believes it. Right, that's not what he wants for you or for me. And so we're going we're gonna to look at how, uh, how groupthink can kind of creep into our lives, into uh, our country, into our church, um, and, uh, and see how Jesus views that. Mark Twain said about this, uh, said about groups, he said that uh, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to reform or pause and reflect. Right? Always be careful if you're agreeing with the majority. Because we live in a world that's, that's really driven by, by majority rule, by, by crowds. Uh, crowds decide what's moral and what's not. Crowds decide uh, what's true and what's not. Uh, they determine policy. And, if, and, and the thinking goes, basically, that if you're drawing a crowd, you must be doing something right. Right? If, uh, the more people that go and watch your show or listen to your music or uh, you know, listen to you speak or whatever it is, buy your product, the better it must be. Right? And there's this weird kind of uh, critical mass thing that happens that the more of a crowd you draw, the more of a crowd you draw. Right? Crowds attract crowds. Because we don't we have this fear of missing out. If everybody's doing this, I need to get in on it because I don't want to miss out. And social media is a great example of this. Like, who, just guesses, who do you think it has the largest social media following in the world? Nobody has a guess. All right. Donald Trump. <laughs> there may be more messages about him than anybody. Uh, no, I mean, you, you, that's a good guess, right? You might think a president or a king or queen or the pope or something like that. Uh, no, it's, it's Christian, uh, Christian Ronaldo, the soccer player or football. Right? He has uh, 168 million followers. Number two is Ariana Grande. She's a fine singer, whatever. Number, uh, she has uh, 156 million. Number three is Selena Gomez. I don't even know what she does now. The top three. Now, 
they're all good at whatever it is they do. Uh, but those are the three most powerful people on the planet. They have the most influence of anyone on the planet. Is that who you want determining what is true and moral and right and what the policies for your life are going to be? Not, I don't, pr- personally, right? So, so crowds worry me. The majority worries me. Because a person is capable of, of critical thought, thoughtful consideration. Crowds are prone to panic and rash decisions and poor decisions. Right? We probably, if we're honest, we probably all have a picture somewhere of ourselves that reflects a time when we followed the majority and in retrospect, we really wish we hadn't. You know what I'm talking about, that one haircut that you had or that outfit, you know, your mullet and parachute pants or, or your uh, saggy jeans and backwards hat or whatever it was, that, you know, whatever style was. There's, a, there's some times where we followed the majority and in retrospect we go, yeah, that was kind of dumb. Another uh, uh, great um, political satirist of our time, John Stewart, says, you have, you have to remember one thing about the will of the people. It wasn't that long ago that we were swept away by the Macarena. Okay. So, so last week we, we saw Jesus, he, he was at the end of, of this journey he's been on. It's about a nine-month journey. Uh, and during that nine months, he had visited 35 different areas that he ministered in. And, uh, and at times, his travel route seemed a little odd or, or random, where he would go one direction and then double back and go the way that he had just come uh, and visit a city that he had skipped the first time, and it was probably confusing to his followers. But it turns out that it was a carefully planned trip, because he arrives at Jerusalem at a very specific time, at just the right time. As a matter of fact, the day and even the hour of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was selected before eternity. We'll get into that a little bit. But, there, but the, not only is it uh, a very specific place and time, but there's also a major shift in the focus of his ministry and of the Gospel of Matthew from here on out. Because this is beginning what we call the Passion Week. This is the week of Jesus' crucifixion. And the Gospel of Matthew is pretty long, and a quarter of that book is dedicated to what happens in this one week. The other Gospels follow suit. One, it's it's nearly a third uh, of one of the Gospels. It's two-fifths of another one of the Gospels. They they spend a lot of time focusing on what happens during this week. So it's important, right? This is big stuff. But also Jesus is is changing his approach of how he views crowds and and the the masses because there's been a few times where large crowds gathered around him and he did speak and minister to them and then he would try to get away from them as quickly as he could but now he's going to go public basically he's embracing the crowd uh, because things are about to change in a big way so we're gonna we're gonna get into the scripture and see if we can break all that down but before we do let's go to the lord in prayer and ask us to ask him to help us understand it Lord, we thank you for giving us another day, another opportunity that we can gather together, we can sing songs of praise and worship, and we get to hear your word spoken and taught. 
Lord, we, uh, we just pray that as we, as we study how, uh, how people have oftentimes been blind and, and gone through the motions, done the right things without having the right focus, we pray that uh, we would have the right focus today. So anything that, uh, any time that we've uh, had a focus on ourselves, any sin that we've committed, any, any time where we've blocked out your voice this week, Lord, we pray that you would wipe that, cleanse us, uh, and that our eyes and our hearts would be open to hear and be changed by your word today. Uh, we pray for your blessing on the message and on the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Matthew 21, verse 1, it says, As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and as soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, I used to, when I read this, I used to think, wow, that's so cool that Jesus knew exactly where a donkey would be, which, which I mean, he's God, he knows everything, right? Uh, and certainly he did, but now I, I think he knew where the donkey would be because he's arranged it, right? He knew he would be coming here on this day, and he probably arranged for a donkey and a colt. Either way, you know, it shows that he knows what's up. Now, Mark's, uh, the Gospel of Mark, the account of all this, says that this colt had, was one that had never been ridden. Now, I'm not, you know, I don't own stables or anything, but those of you that have some experience with riding an animal, you generally don't want to be the first person to try to ride an animal, right? Because they, they need braking, they need training. And so... That's okay, though, because Jesus says, nope, I want this one that's never been ridden. I think there's some, some reasoning behind that. Now, Mason, you know, it could be that this one's never been ridden because it's been set aside for him, and that's true. But also, I think Jesus is trying to show them that whatever I call you to, you don't have to be totally equipped for yet. I don't call the equipped. I equip those that I call. Maybe something that you've never done before that he's calling you to. But he knows what you're capable of. Verse 3 says, If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, The Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. The Lord needs them. You know, do you have anything in your life that you could give to help further the gospel? Something that maybe seems not that important or, you know, a gift or a, a talent or uh, whatever. There's probably something in your life that could further the gospel. Because that's what this cult was going to do. It was going to bring the gospel, bring the kingdom into Jerusalem. See, the Bible tells us that your life, all your gifts, all your talents, everything you've accumulated was actually prepared ahead of time for you. In Ephesians chapter 2, we love to quote verses 8 and 9, right? For, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And we love that. But verse 10, it says this. It says, for we are his workmanship. It means his, his unique piece of art. Each one, you're all little snowflakes. You're all different, right? 
We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So in other words, when God designed you, he also designed a specific set of works, of actions, a plan for you. This is what you were built for. No, it doesn't mean that if you don't do those things that they just don't get done. It's kind of like this, like if you prepare a special meal for your spouse, it's their favorite thing, even if they don't show up to dinner, it's going to get eaten and everybody else gets to enjoy it, right? But this was made for you. This was specifically for you. And so there were works, there are actions, there are uh, ministry paths that God designed you specifically for. That's exciting to me, trying to figure out what those things are. Well, we go on, Matthew 21, verse 4. It says, This took place, this riding the donkey thing, took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. So he's, he's quoting an Old Testament prophecy there. So one of the reasons that this needed to happen was because it fulfilled prophecy. By this time, riding a donkey was not a particularly glorious thing. Even today, right? When, we, when you picture uh, a president or a king coming into town, we don't picture them riding on a right? You know, we, some presidents and kings, we may picture, we may picture that, but, but, you know, that's not what we think they should be riding. It's not a very noble animal, right? But in, in David's time, King David actually rode a donkey, and there was a, a reason for it, because it was, it, was a, it was considered a kingly animal, because if I rode into your town on a donkey, it shows that I am completely at ease, I feel no threat, right? I, there's no reason I'm going to need to flee in a hurry, right? I'm, I'm riding an animal that is not going to get me away from your chariots and horses. So it shows I, you might ride a donkey into a town when you're going to negotiate a, a peace treaty, right? Or into an area to just show that, uh, you know, your kingdom is stable. Now, if you want to kick butt and take names, you ride in on a horse, right? Now, Jesus is about to ride on a donkey. He does ride a horse at some point. We'll read it just for fun. Revelation 19, verse 11, says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's cool. That's some gangster stuff, right? That's, that's the Jesus we want to see, right? But for now... Jesus is humbly riding a donkey. And in his own words, he says, I'm meek and I'm humble in heart. 
I have no intention of fleeing what I know is about to happen. So Matthew 21, verse 6, it says, The disciples went, and they did, just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This word Hosanna, it's, a, it's an interesting word. Now, depending on which translation you have, like I think the New Living just says uh, uh, praise God instead of Hosanna. But the word there, it, it is Hosanna, and it's a, it's a weird word. It, it means, it can mean save now. It can mean save please or salvation, thank you. And so basically they're just saying, salvation, please, and thank you, you know, deliver us. Now, thanks. But what they're actually doing is they're, they're quoting Psalm 118. And it goes like this. We're going to read a few verses from this. It says the, uh, Psalm 118, verse 22. It says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Almost every line of this thing is one Christian song or another. If you've gone to vacation Bible school as a kid, you may remember some of these. But this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. Right? That's Hosanna. Save, please. O Lord, we beseech you, uh, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. It's a weird turn, right? See, for the disciples, this is a highlight moment for them. They've been with Jesus for a few years now, and they've been basically homeless and and now they're marching into Jerusalem and the people are throwing their coats on the ground before him and waving palm branches and, and, and saying, you know, this is the king. And they feel like, finally, the recognition we've been looking for. They're, you know, they're giving him the red carpet treatment. The people, they're quoting Psalm 118, but they don't even realize what they're saying. Right? They just said... This is the day. Bind the sacrifice. I mentioned earlier that Jesus, he showed up to Jerusalem at a very specific date, very specific time. Uh, it, was, it was the 10th of Nisan. Nisan was the, on the Jewish calendar. So the Jewish calendar is a, is a lunar calendar. Uh, 360 days in a year instead of 365. So basically every full moon, you've got another month. And he shows up on the 10th of Nisan. Daniel is another Old Testament prophet. You may be familiar with his work with lions and uh, veggie tales. Um, but he lived during the time when Jerusalem and the Temple of Solomon had been destroyed and he received a bunch of prophecies about how things were going to sh shake out in the future. 
Uh, and one specifically was about the rebuilding of Jerusalem and when the Messiah would finally show up on the scene, when the king would finally come. And he says this in Daniel 9, verse 25, he says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, right? So the, the time between when it's officially decided we're going to rebuild Jerusalem to when the Messiah shows up, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, he wasn't saying, so it's going to be like next year, right? He's, he's using the term week to mean a group of seven. Like if you have seven eggs, that's a week of eggs. At my house, that's one breakfast of eggs. But it's, uh, so weeks was a group of seven. And so he's, he says there's, uh, there's going to be 69 groups of seven years between the time this decree happens and when the Messiah shows up. So, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, there would be 69 weeks of years. So that's 483 years. And remember for them, a year was 360 days. Keep up, this is on the test later. Right? So, 483 years times 360 days for a year. You end up with 173,880 days. Okay? So, set the Bible aside for a second. History agrees that Artaxerxes uh, made a decree to rebuild Jerusalem on, by our calendar, it would have been March 14th, 445 B.C. Um, and so we add that 173,880 days. Guess where you end up? You end up on April 6th, or the 10th of Nisan, 32 A.D. The very day Jesus arrives in Jerusalem was the very day Daniel said he would do so. Down to the very day. So this wasn't just a good day. This was the exact day. This was the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad because the sacrifice is here. Right? So the people, they're saying and doing the right things. But it turns out that many of them had no idea what they were doing or why. Right? Because they're all, they're all waving the branches and throwing their coats and, and singing Psalm 118. And here's our king. And Matthew 21, verse 10, it says, When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth and Galilee. Right? So everybody's running up and going, yeah, yeah, the king. Who is it anyway? What are we cheering for? They don't even know. Because crowds attract crowds. That's what they do. See, they'd been conditioned for this. And they were failing to see what was right in front of them. See, they were religious. Right? They knew that every year, on this day, this is the thing that we do. We go out and we sing this, and we do this, and we go through these motions. Here's what I'm talking about. So every year, the high priest of Israel would choose a national Passover lamb. Because that's what this 
week that we're talking about is, this is leading up to Passover. So he would choose the national Passover lamb, and they would take, it, would, it would take place outside of Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan. And then there would be a parade as they marched the national sacrificial lamb through the streets of Jerusalem, and everyone would wave palm branches and quote Psalm 118 as it passed by. I almost wonder, did Jesus just ride in behind that parade or ahead of it? Was he just like the next attraction in the parade, the next float? Or did they actually know and recognize who he was? So this lamb, it was taken to the temple for examination for a few days. So people could check it out and make sure it was pure and spotless. They had over 50 different tests that they would take it through. Then on the 14th of the month, after the lamb was officially declared to be pure and free of defect, uh, it was placed on the altar at 9 a.m. or the third hour. See, the, uh, the way they told time at that time, it was a day started at 6 a.m., right? So the first hour or the third hour would be 9 a.m. So at 9 a.m., they would put the, uh, the lamb on the altar, and it would remain there until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At that time, the high priest would take out his knife and slit the throat of the sacrifice and declare that it is finished. After the uh, death of the lamb, they'd take this lamb and they'd put it on a vertical pole and then there'd be another horizontal pole that they they would use to flay the skin back because they needed to make sure that in all this that none of the lamb's bones were broken. And then they would take the heart and the blood and that would be used for atonement and sacrifices. Okay, all that being said, that was what happened every year. On this year, on this day, Jesus marched into Jerusalem, the spotless lamb. And he was watched very closely by people that week. He, he hung out in and around the temple and taught and answered questions and debated with Pharisees and Sadducees. And, and he himself said when they approached him uh, to arrest him that, you know, he, they had, had had every opportunity to examine him. Mark 14, verse 48, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not take me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. This is fine. This is what has to happen. And so on the 14th of Nisan, after Jesus, he, had, he took a kind of an early Passover meal with his disciples. We, we call that the Last Supper. And then he uh, faced betrayal in Gethsemane and endured a night of anguish and, and torment at the hands of Roman and Jewish officials. <clears throat> he was led, led away to be crucified at the third hour, at 9 a.m. Mark 15, verse 25. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the Bible tells us that Jesus hung on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. When, according to the scriptures, he voluntarily 
yielded up his spirit and, and cried out, it is finished. And see, he kind of frustrated the guards because he died too fast. Ordinarily, this was a long execution. And the way you die from a crucifixion, you don't bleed out. You die from asphyxiation. You suffocate. Your, your arms, your shoulders become dislocated. and You've got uh, spikes through, your, through each arm and through your feet. And so you try to pull yourself up to take a breath. And you can't, so you push with your feet, and, and then you can't hold that for very long, so then you slump back down, and now you can't breathe again, and the process goes on and on until you exhaust yourself. Well, normally what would happen is the guards would get tired of watching this scene, and so they would break your legs, so you can't push off anymore. But Jesus dies fairly quickly. He dies in such a way that there's no broken bones in his body. And at exactly the same time that all that happens, the high priest is over here with the Passover lamb, slitting his throat, declaring it is finished. See, these aren't coincidences. These aren't just, wow, that's odd. God, from the beginning, knew this would happen. He he, he's, he's chose a specific day and time and place and method of how all of this would happen. And then he, he told the people, Here, hey, every year, do this, watch for this. That way you'll see when your king comes. That way you'll know and be able to see the king. But they lost the script. So while the people, they're cheering... The disciples are beaming with pride, but Jesus is looking past the crowd to the cross. He knows this moment right now is false. They're not actually making me king. They're not seeing the king who's right in front of them. Luke gives us what was going through Jesus' mind right before he, he rode into Jerusalem. We get this, Luke 19, verse 41, he says, but as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Because this, this is me riding into my city. I wish you could see me for who I am. But you're, you've got blind faith. They cheered for Jesus without knowing him, without seeing him. And so what I see when I look at this is I know I've trusted Jesus for my eternal life, right? That's, that's how you become a Christian. That's how you have eternal life is you look at who he says he is, what he says he can do, and you go, yes, I believe that. So I know I've done that. But am I going through the motions and not seeing him in areas where he wants to be seen and known? Am I, serving, uh, am I serving people or the church or my family out of guilt or a sense of responsibility, or am I doing it to serve Jesus? Right? Am I, uh, do I read his word without really hearing him or understanding? Or maybe do I even read it all? Right? Basically, am I part of the crowd doing the right things on the right days, 
or am I part of his family? Right? Because worship is, is worship something that makes me feel better? Right? They sang my favorite songs today, and so I feel good. Or is it, uh, is it something that I just, I do on Sunday? So I've got a little clue for you. Worship is not the 20 minutes of songs. It's not the 35 minutes of sermon or 50 minutes if it's Chris preaching. Okay. It's, it's not the prayers that we utter. It's not the, any of that stuff. All of those things can be a part of worship. But that's not what worship is is. It's not a thing I do on Sunday. It's, it needs to be a part of how I live. So the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Right? We, we all have those times where we think, I, just not sh- I don't know what God's will is for my life or God's plan for me. Or, or maybe, you know, I want to get involved in something, but I just don't know what it is that God would have me do. Um, the reality is, you give your life as a sacrifice to him. That's your worship. You just make yourself available. And then he'll equip you for what he calls you to. But you just start, right? I don't, I don't know exactly what his path is for me, but I'm going to, God, here I am, use me. I'm going to walk in whatever it is you put before me. That's worship. God, here I am with my family. Here I am at my job. Here I am in traffic. What would you have me do? What would be pleasing to you? What's your way here? Or we can do the things the way the majority does things. We can follow the crowd. If we follow popular opinion, a, a friend of mine used to say this, that if we follow popular opinion, we should all be eating horse manure. Because billions of maggots can't be wrong, right? It must be delicious. No. That's, and that will be the part of the sermon everyone remembers. <laughs> that guy said we should eat horse poop. Yeah. What's, uh, what, is, what the majority follows and does isn't what saves. Because your faith, your relationship with Jesus is yours and yours alone. Matthew 7 verse 13 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. The gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Bottom line, 
when God looked through all of time, through eternity, he looked, he looked through that and saw you. And even if everyone else was perfect and everyone else did everything right, he saw everything about you and who you are. And he said, I'll die for that one. I've already set a place and a day and a time where I'm going to die for every sin that one will ever do. Because you're worth it to him. He died for me and he died for you. But it doesn't matter what about anybody else, the Broadway or, or what everyone else believes. What matters is the relationship between him and you. He died for you. Do you believe that? So I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for all of us. And uh, we get out and enjoy our rainy Memorial Day weekend. All right? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that uh, you've given us a, an opportunity to study your word. That, that God, that you, you breathed out your holy word through... Uh, there men that you, you called to, to write it down, that inspiration, that you've breathed it out, and today we've gotten to breathe some of it in, and we pray that we would be changed by it. Lord, for those of us that have, have put our faith in you, that have trusted you for eternal life, I just pray that you would, that you would continue to open the eyes of our hearts, that our, our faith wouldn't become blind, that it wouldn't be we wouldn't just be going through the motions and doing the right things and failing to see you in it. God, help us to see help us to see our, our spouses and our children, our coworkers, our neighbors. Help us to see them as what they are. As precious, valuable children of God that that you were willing to die for. And let us love them accordingly. God, for those that uh, maybe don't know whether they have a relationship with you yet or are wrestling with it, we pray that, again, that you would open their eyes to the truth of who you are, that they would see that everything's been done, that you died not just for the sins they've committed, but the ones that they're going to commit, the times that they're going to mess up in the future. And even still, you value them enough to have set that date and done that work and, and suffered in their place. And if they would simply trust you, believe you, when you say who you are and what you can do, and they could have eternal life through that. God, we pray that uh, we continue to grow closer to you, to recognize uh, the, the paths of the works that you've laid before us, that we would walk in them. And more than anything, Lord, we pray that you come and come quickly. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, y'all ready? Break. All right.